Hey folks, get my therapy on Anchor.fm, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, CastBox, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Stitcher, TuneIn, and just about anywhere else you get your podcasts. On this episode, we're speaking with Lynn Keen. She is a public speaker, a mental health advocate. Check out her suicide prevention TED Talk on YouTube and learn more about her and her book, Give Sorrow Words, on lynnkeen.ca. Okay, let's do this show. Happy to uh, have on the podcast today, Lynn Keen. I've uh, been looking to get you on for a while, and glad that we could set this up. Uh, Lynn is a uh, an author and uh, mental health advocate. Uh, she, you did uh, a TED Talk a number of years ago on uh, the death of your son. Um, thank you for joining us, and can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks. Uh, thanks, Justin. Um, happy to be here. Um, well, I was sort of propelled into this world of advocacy through um, through being a survivor of suicide loss in 2009. Uh, when I emerged, I guess is really the only way to put it, from um, my own grief-driven depression, um, like there was really very little help for our family post-invention. And so it was really just a matter of clawing through the system past a suicide to, to try to get support for, for us. Um, and realizing that there were so many people like our family, so many people had um, suffered loss of their child or family member. And um, for me, it was I had to start talking about it. I had to, well, I guess initially I had to start going back in Daniel's history. And it's like I needed to put together the pieces as best I could. Um, and it led me to the research and it led me to really understand, you know, the multitude of factors that came together that day um, were, were many years in the making. And probably at several points along that journey, I, you know, if we had knowledge, if we had education, um, tools that we could have intervened, we perhaps our story would be different. Um, so with that knowledge, I, I started writing short pieces. One was in the Globe and Mail and one was in the Post. And it just started to create this um, people, group of people out there that were writing back to me saying, that's our story. Thank you for sharing our story. And so I, it was sort of gave me that, yeah, you know what? I, I think there's a, there's, there's a reason that I need to tell Daniel's story. And if, if it changes the thought process of one young person, then, then it was worth it. Uh, let's start with with your son Daniel uh, what was what was he like and uh, what led to uh, his death oh I could go on about Daniel <laughs> he was a character um, so he was my oldest he he would be 32 next sun, next Sunday March 3rd and um, kind of like the fixer of the family and sort of the the core of our sense of humor in the family so uh, we we sort of looked to him for a lot of things over the years we didn't you know you realize it after the fact but we really did look to him for so many small and large things. Um, he had a energy that was, uh, you'd, he'd walk into a room and there was this energy that he would bring with him. Um, so you can imagine when that's gone, it's just, it's just, it's such a, such a pain, it's such a hurt, heartbreak, but it's also just this day-to-day loss of this energy force that he was. Um, great looking guy, just, just, as I said, a, a, a great son, great brother. Um, Daniel grew up with uh, life-threatening food allergies, anaphylaxis, as like from the get-go. He, like from basically when he was born, um, and also um, moderate asthma. Uh, over the years, he sort of overcame all that. Like he he was learned to be a great cook, and 
those those issues that we sort of saw, in other words, I as a mom and, and my husband, we tried to keep him safe through not through physical his physical issues. We had no understanding that these physical issues, asthma, anaphylaxis, the way that he was different, or had to sort of um, navigate the world was different. W- layer upon layer, we're sort of creating this anxiety in him as a, as a young young kid. Um, little did I know that that was a really direct core correlation. Um, like underlying health issues, particularly physical health issues, were directly correlation to adult depression. Had no knowledge of it. So um, anyway, as I said, he was one of those kids that just like, I don't want to talk about it. I know how to deal with it. You know, don't make a thing of it. And so that's how we sort of functioned. When he, um, I'd say maybe 12 or 13, I could see maybe a little more agitation at the fact that he had to be different. He couldn't just go to a pizza parlor. He couldn't just go to Tim's the way the way most of the world can operate. And I think, again, I would say things and I look back and I just think, what like what planet? Why would you have said that? But it's like you have so much to offer and, you know, your issues that you have to deal with are, are not minor, but people have dealt with more and have accomplished things. So it's like don't and I look at it now, it's like, no, that was a real thing. That his, his physical health condition set him at, a, at an increased risk for developing depression and anxiety. And I think part of my uh, what has propelled me to speak out so much is it, 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 it could have started that simply. And I, if I had had more awareness and education, I wouldn't have probably said those things. So actually helping him cope with his uh, emotional challenges, we were a loving, we were a loving family, but we, we couldn't give him the compassion he needed. And that probably strikes me the hardest, is that when he needed us most, we were so ill-prepared to, to support him. Mm. So how did you, like, what was, how did you kind of manage some of these signs that he was showing? So um, so we went away the first year. So up until that point, really, we, we sort of lived this sort of very normal existence. And, and actually, the, the change actually came at first year because it was his first period of time away. Um, and I think he had... A significant concern and anxiousness around living away from home with the whole food issue thing, and I think as a result, he's he you know I don't know sort of the chicken and egg what happened first, but he he started to drink, and so then um, then he wasn't turning in his papers and he wasn't functioning and and meeting the demands of school, and I think along the way we can look at also you know sort of even before he went to university. There's, there's every op- there was so many opportunities for Daniel to have concussions through his extreme boarding. He was a wakeboarder, snowboarder, and he fell hard, really fell really hard on his wakeboard. I mean, I witnessed it several times. So there was opportunities that, again, we didn't understand. So when he's at university, he's he's starting to lose concentration just on focusing. So I'm thinking, you know, was that a result of an undiagnosed concussion? You know, again, we 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 never had a chance to actually get him into the mental health system or the medical system. Had he ever treated? Concussions? Had he ever been treated for a concussion? Yeah. No, he had not. Um, but even falling hard and shaking your brain matter around is, even if it's not quantifiable, it's still there's damage. And I, mm-hmm. um, and I think I correlate that because of the, his his sort of a, that loss of concentration when it when when he started to need it. And he'd come back, he'd come home from his breaks, and everything was fine. He'd cook, you know, he was like focused. He was in his room working, studying, whatever, and. You know, he also had a side business in the summers um, doing cottage maintenance, this wow. cottage concierge. So he was like dancing around all these things and yet... Highly motivated. Highly motivated. And uh, so, uh, but what was happening, I think, is, is, is as the months and years wore on, um, 
he was in this sort of spiral. So his at, he was um, at a university. Uh, he was his first university. They asked him to change programs after first year because he just wasn't meeting um, the criteria. His decision was to come back closer to home. We all agreed to go to another university closer to home. He could we could sort of be more in contact. He was on board with that. But I think the the damage was there. And again, part of it is when when you're when you're in such a um, such a deep I say catastrophic depression is it's really hard because when things are okay, you grab onto, he was grabbing onto those moments where he was living and, and you know, whether was it bipolar? We don't know. We would we'd never know. But it, it, if you look at it, he, he had high mania and then just sort of crashing. And that's when he was away. So we didn't see that side. What we started to see was he text us and say, Oh, I can't make it home for dinner. I've got to do a school project. Well, what we, we started to learn in his, um, in the year 2009, after his death, is he actually wasn't attending school. So he was creating these, uh, you know, I don't even want to say facades. He was trying to make it look like he was at school he when was, he wasn't. Yeah, he, he, at the end of the day, he didn't want to disappoint us. He didn't know how to approach us in a way that, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't care. There's nothing you could have done, you know, short of hurting another human being, that we wouldn't have done everything for you. But again, we weren't having those dialogues with our kids. We weren't saying, I can't cope I can't, I have to stop what I'm doing today. Okay, then, you know, all hands on deck. Because we, we get it now, we get sort of the, that trajectory. And I think, I think that's, that's how we're going to get to zero suicide and those kinds of initiatives we can talk about later. But you were, we were sort of uh, strung, like we, we were sort of, our hands were tied because we were so ill-equipped. So, um, so the year that we, we lost Daniel to suicide, um, so you asked me earlier about the signs. So again, loss of weight, um, sort of staying up most of the night, having light on in his room. And it's like we were constantly trying to tell him to turn off his, his lights, his TV, his computer. But he said, I can't sleep. So sleeplessness. Um, his his sleeping in in the morning and just not being able, like looking at the functioning uh, side of it. I, I, I think in some ways as his mom, I was in denial of what I was seeing. I mean, what do you mean by that? Because even not having an understanding of what this was looking like and where it could have led to, I think I was always trying to, because he grew up with with all like this sort of basket of health issue, physical health issues. I was always kind of his cheerleader and always trying to look at the positive, right? And I think in that moment, in those times, I should have tried to start peeling away what the heck I was seeing. That's really what I should have been doing. But I was. I was not going there. I was like, like trying to look forward. What are you doing this summer? What are the c- clients you're going to get for your summer business? Like, what do you, who, what's your staff look like? Like you're almost seeing him retreat, and you're kind of like, no, get back on track, right? And I should have gone with him there. Like I should have. Yeah. And, and I know there was moments we would drive back to school, and uh, I'd drop him off at school, and and uh, you know, I, I remember this like vividly is the song "Black" by Pearl Jam and uh, Eddie Vedder, and we had just listened to it, and I, I I felt myself sort of welling up, and I said, those those lyrics are just so haunting, and. I, I could almost feel him, in a way, st- try to talk to me about his darkness, and it was almost in reference to another person. And it hit me after we lost him. It was like he was telling me he was talking to him about himself. Um, but I, I think it was it was a, it was a confluence of self medicating behavior, potential, um, you know, uh, concussion, um, physical health conditions, really, and a sense of not belonging. I think as, 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 as his suicidal ideation started to really ramp up, it was his sense of, of being a burden to his family, his friends, and just not belonging. And I, I think there was just a complete loss of hope 
And so the, the, the actual day that uh, we lost Daniel, he went up to retrieve uh, business records for his taxes. And he was coming home for dinner. And we had this conversation about the summer, what, you know, how he was going to kind of get back on track. And <coughs> we had these simple conversations. I look back. And I said, uh, if you're going up, why don't you take my truck because it's probably more, more roadworthy. And he goes, oh, that's a good idea. And then that day, he must have called me four or five times talking about the summer. Like, I had a time to think. I really know sort of where I need to be. And and by 7 o'clock, he didn't return from dinner. And the texts we got were very um, heading home, heading west. And then we did nothing. So, um, you know, to 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 the fact that he had to live in that world and that's that was his last day is... Um, is brutal, and so for me, it's like, a I don't want another child to have to do that, deal with that, and also another family to have to to deal with that. And I know it, it will continue to happen, but it's, you know, as long as we have these conversations, we have an opportunity to change our thought process. And and I see, you know, we talk about that TEDx talk I did. We had two hundred and fifty odd young people from grade seven to ten in the in the room. Is there 10 anymore? I don't even know. But anyway, they were probably 15 to 18-ish. Um, and prior to my talk, the host just said, you know, after Lynn talks, if you feel that you've been moved or if you if you need to talk to somebody, there's two counselors at the top of the Science Center um, at the top floor. When the lights went on after I spoke, there was a ribbon of kids climbing up the stairs to talk to counselors. Wow. I mean, they, they had no issue sharing their pain. And so that tells me uh, that was... 2014, things you, had changed that much. That talk had literally an immediate impact. Exactly. Yeah. It was, and I think that was also a seminal moment for me because it, I, it sort of crystallized a lot of the. I did like a lot of my advocacy is is in writing. I do a lot more writing than I do anything else. Um, and I think it sort of. I thought that's what that's what those young people needed to hear. They needed to see visuals of Daniel. They needed to understand the pain that. Because it also reminded them of what was going on in their own families, and they may not have spoken about it before. So, so many um, beautiful young people approached me. At this talk I did in Niagara a couple weeks ago, same thing. Young people came up to me. Thank you. That's where I'm at. I'm, I'm Daniel, but I'm, I think I'm going to make it. I mean, those are just powerful things I'm hearing. So um, I guess that's one of the reasons I'm here today. It's just, it's... I, I always sort of have this little thing with Daniel I, is that he'll give me a sign when I can stop, but he hasn't given me that sign yet. Um, th- thank you for being here today, and um, thank you for sharing all of that. And uh, I want to kind of work chronologically, sure. um, but I want to go back on a couple of things you mentioned there. And just keep in mind that uh, just share as much as you're comfortable with. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to push your boundaries. I just want you to mm-hmm. be at a, at a comfortable level. Um, you had talked about uh, that he may have been bipolar and you saw kind of signs of mania and signs of him being really low. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what those uh, those highs and lows kind of looked like? Mm-hmm. So just also keep in mind, I didn't have a, f- uh, a I guess, a um, facility or, or a language around mental illness. Like I, I don't even know that we, we talked about mental health and I don't think there was ever that conversation. So I didn't um, when when I in, in sort of after losing Daniel, the whole idea about bipolar really crystallized because I could see the two signs. Clearly, he was dealing with um, an intense sadness. 
And I think that had been building for several years. And every now and then he could be pulled back. And I, I, I honestly think that there was probably moments, I think he tried to stay as long as he could. That's really what I would say. But the signs that I saw were the sadness. And that's really, those times I did try to talk to him. And, and you know, at the end of those conversations, he'd say, well, you know, you don't understand me or dad doesn't understand me or, and it, or my teachers don't. And it was, yes, you're right. But how, like, help us, help me understand what you're feeling. But again, not, not connecting that, that symptom I'm seeing to suicide. So, you know, in, in, I'll say in years ago, I think I, I would say, why, why didn't you ever reach out to me? But he, he, in hindsight, I realized he did. And by seeing that sadness, which was not ever there. That's the other thing is this, this young man had so much energy and he was on this like path to something good. Um, because that should have been a, like a, a huge moment for us. Like, how did that just change his weight? He he never was a big big guy. Like he you know he was never like overweight or anything. But he he had his when he was standing in the kitchen one day, I noticed he had really pulled his belt loop like it was hanging mm. to the point where I thought like you have lost weight like substantial weight to keep your pants up like that. So um, again, I would I would ask him. He says, well, you know, I, like I'm going to go back to the gym and. I didn't dig, we didn't know enough to dig deeper, but those were, um, the sleeplessness, huge. Um, the things that we didn't see, we learned after, the the, um, the complete, the, the isolating himself at school, because we, we, what we, what we heard was, can't come home because I've got to work on a school project. And we heard that a lot, and it was, it was almost like this, is that a real thing? But, you know, we kind of roll our eyes, but again, not recognizing he's probably in his room by himself ruminating about what's gone wrong. I mean, that's horrible for us to have to live with, but it's it's the reality of not being educated around mental illnesses. So those 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 were signs I, I could um, I remember seeing, but not understanding what what they what they meant. I did reach out um, after 2007 summer to his um, to our family GP and just said like. Daniel's drinking it, and this is never something we've ever seen. And so he said, he'll have to hit rock bottom. And unfortunately, that's not how you get somebody back from, from you know, uh, hurting themselves. So I, I recognize that our primary for caregivers have little time or, or chance to have education. And I think one of these things that some of these suicide prevention programs are trying to do is actually start on the front lines with GPs, with our primary caregivers, giving them sort of baseline information on what they see day to day because they don't know what to do and they don't have necessarily the time to take those courses. And I mean, they have to have mental health first aid. That's just sort of, that's just to me, it's like they have to have but that. But do they even have that? They don't, I don't think they do. Yeah. I don't, I, I think it's like potentially uh, health, like the uh, primary, what do they call them? Um, nurse practitioners may have because they've got, potentially that's maybe more, but um, you you should never ha- hear your child will have to hit bottom before they can get help. That's like old medicine, like that's old treatment values. It's just like and then we then what do we do? We'll lock them away. We know now that we want to get them way before. We want to get them in elementary school. We want to build in resiliency and and how do you, how do you manage tough times or things you've seen or how do you how do you cope with things? Because no one gets through this life without a scar. And I I. I because Daniel grew up with things already, I, I recognize that those those things had an effect on him as he grew up. And um, I, I remember very, very 
very closely after his suicide, I would I would got notes from Anaphylaxis Canada, you know, you know, sending their condolences, and I and I you know reached out privately to one of the directors, and I said, well, he didn't. That's not how Daniel died. But I said, I, this is really important for you to share with oh, your family. Oh, their understanding that's how he died. They they you know sort of they just assumed potentially right. it was an anaphylactic reaction. And I said, you know, your parents they need to understand the connection between physical and mental health conditions. So. Um, and I think I think we're just all way you know you know yourself we're just we talk about it so much more and so I, I think it's critically as a parent or as a partner when you see something changing in someone you love that's just a red flag you know you're not going to see everything because like as we did we didn't see the stuff away from us but things that we did see were um, any one of those to me is is an alarm bell you don't have to wait you know I think it's just any one of them are caused to 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 uh, intervene. The one thing that really stands out to me in all of this is how important conversations are like this. And um, I go through moments where I'm like, do I want to do the podcast anymore? And um, I think that this is a very good example of why we need to keep having these conversations and making it more and more obvious and, and apparent that it's okay to have mental health issues and, the, and there's help out there because – Basically, you had to lose your son to mm-hmm. to to find out that these are real things and that the help's out there and to do something about it. And um, it's yeah, it's it sucks. It's, it's not bad, but it's that's putting it lightly. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess I mean I, I'm, I'm next in April will be ten years, so this year is pretty significant to us. Um, but it's we've gone through so much just um, just as a family because. Truly, after a, a tragedy, uh, because you don't have a, that, you don't have no understanding. There's no time to prepare, and um, the shock is sort of a protective covering over over the, the people that are, are are affected. But when that starts to to move away, it the the the, the ache is it, it's the most debilitating ache. And I I look at the three, you know, the four of us remaining family members. We couldn't help each other. Like we had, we couldn't help Daniel in his time of pain. We we were ill prepared to, to do anything after this happened. So, you know, every on each each buddy, everybody in our family has sort of grieved in their own sort of very personal way. But that's another t- topic. We just we 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 never grew up talking about the grieving process and what does even that mean? Does it does it hit you all at once? Is it it's everything? It's all of it all together or one thing at a time? It's it's not linear linear. And so probably for two years, for most of two years, I stayed almost in bed. Like I would get up to do- walk my dog. I didn't really function as a mother in the way that I had or I do now. Um, it, just, it was just like the, the change, the, the, the moving through a loss by suicide is, is, is it's agonizing. And I, I um, you know, when you kind of you move towards the next part of your life, you, you sort of look back thinking... I don't even know how this is 10 years. Like, I was going to ask you, and you kind of touched on it, but I want to go further if you're willing. Um, I was wondering if it took time to figure out how to grieve and how to move past that. And you talked about that. You said you basically didn't get out of bed for two years. How did you, how did you move through that? How did you get back to where you needed to be as a parent, as a person? Um. There, there was probably I had I, I call it moments of grace. There were just things that would happen, like even r- right away that I, 
I, I think I started reading. I think that reading was really the the catalyst to if you think of think of like pain as sort of sitting on your heart that just like that gripping uh, chilling pain but I started reading and I started reading just family stories not necessarily people that had lost through suicide but just sort of family loss or family stories and I realized that that narrative extends so far beyond like there's so much pain and that actually literally shifted that pain for the moments that I would read and as I I started to read about the research around um, youth depression and, and anxiety and, and looking at in specifically Daniel. Um, those are the moments that lifted me beyond where I was. So I, I think b- because I was so mired in it, and I, I guess that there was a point in those two years, I just started, I said, okay, like, it, just do it. Like, wherever I'm at, like, I, I initially I was running from the grief. On the day we learned, it took me probably eight hours before I actually learned how Daniel died. I knew after he didn't come home that night, I had a sense that something had gone on. Like there there was this maternal sense, probably around 10 o'clock that I opened the door and just screamed and I ran outside. And, you know, of course my husband is trying to calm me. I, I came back and we tried to sleep and then Bruce was going to go up and find, you know, find out where Daniel was and that didn't quite transpire. But I was, from that moment, I started running from, whatever was coming towards me, like, like viscerally, I knew that I, I didn't know how I could exist without my son in this world. And there was a moment and I, I just wish, you know, I'll never remember the day, but I was very grateful that it happened. I think there was a point where I started running towards it or walking towards it and accepting it. So was it tied up in me starting, I, I went for a run or was it, I don't know the moment, but there was a moment probably even in that two year period where I started to say, okay, just bring it on. Like whatever's happening, I'm going to accept it. And it allowed me to just, I look at his life now and just, I, I, this, this will never, our life will never change now that way. But wow, did we get a great guy? Like we just had the greatest guy for 23 years. And I, I, I feel so fortunate that as a mom that I could say that, you know, yeah, we had our struggles, all families do, but boy, we had a good ride. And I, I think it's in his honor that I continue to use actually my voice, but it's his words, truly. Are, um, but but grief is, you know, another thing that I just think as as, as groups we, we should just understand that it's we're all going to grieve differently, we're all going to lose differently, but when when we love, it's going to hurt like hell. But there, even in this kind of loss, there is another side, and that other side takes years to get to, but you can get there. And it's, you know, I mean... 2018, I did an Ironman. In my wildest dreams, would I've ever thought of doing that? But I think because I actually changed as a human being, I I was forced to change who who I was, what I thought was important. My whole life completely changed. All my values that I held gone, like because nothing made sense anymore. So we, you can recover. It's um, I write it, the very last chapter of the book is basically time heals, grief remembers, and to me, grief is love. It's the other side of love. Um, when you, you mentioned the, the Iron Man, um, what you said in, in kind of your priorities changed or what you thought mattered changed. How did that change? And like, what did you find value and worth in at that point? Just being in the moment, like just been, Daniel was always, always about that. That's the thing I always wanted to say about him is he just, he would see like your shoulders start to go up to your ears and he'd say, just put it, your head, just like bring it down, sit down. Like, just, let's just sit and have a coffee. Like, you don't have to do that. And 
he would always, when he was around, could sort of just sort of keep me sort of, you know, tied to the chair or whatever. But I think um, I just look at things so much differently. Like, like I just, I don't have time for uh, the, th- the stuff we waste time or the things that I would waste time on before, small talk or having a discussion over something. I just don't go there anymore. I just like, I do not have time to have this conversation with you. I I respect your point of view, but I'm not going there. I I think I also really, I so appreciate all, all the moments I have with my, my parents who are in their 80s. I, I always appreciate them and I feel so grateful that I still have parents, but I, I'm so much more uh, appreciative of the moments. I also have way more empathy for people that have pain in a way that I, I could never, I, I don't think you could understand until you've been there. But even at, at a distance, if I don't know that person, I have such a sense of what they must be feeling. Or I think my just my my being, my soul has sort of changed a bit because it's been broken. And so I think it's just um, I just look at things in a way that I, I I can I can actually live now in the moment. I can actually find peace in what this journey looks like for me now. And the Ironman was actually um, a result of Daniel because before he passed, we had this conversation about, you know, could I ever do one? And he said, oh, mom, you're not a swimmer. You could never, you know, we joke. <laughs> he was right. Like, it's very true because I was not a swimmer. But, um, but you know, he said, but, you know, I know if you put your mind to it, you'll do it. And, um, and it was the Muskoka half, the Muskoka 70.3 that I had signed up the year that he died and obviously couldn't do it. And uh, in 2015, I went back and I did it. And that was just like, he was with me as I crossed that line. It was like, yeah, you, you brought me across. Uh, it sounds like it was in his honor. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then in 2018, I, 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 again, it was just, I, I'm not a huge swimmer, but I got in that swim of that Ironman and I, I had this calmness. I mean, I obviously you do the training, but the first thing I thought about, and this was actually, someone had said something to me the week before about... Um, what they thought about when they started their Ironman race and it was um, a, a parent that had passed. And I just thought about Daniel before I got in the water and it was just, he was, he was like so with me in the water in a, in a, in a way that I could just, I, I, I just started like moving through the water. I was on people's feet. I was like, you know, and then I literally got out of the water for the first loop. Apparently my daughter said, I waved at the diver, uh, they have divers in the water and, and uh, took a glass of water and then jumped back in. I have no recollection of that. So I was in some sort of hazy zone that I, wow. I, uh, I think there's so I, I, I think I also live with way more intention. I think it's just, um, I think it was there. It was just, I really feel like um, when you're forced to go somewhere that you've not tapped into, you you learn more about yourself. And I think going as deeply and as low as I had to go to find that resource of how to live again, I think I uncovered other things. And that's kind of the way I look at life. What do you mean by living with more intention? I I guess it's, it's again, probably a lot like the way Daniel lived was just like full throttle. I, I, I'm going to go into it and I'm going to do it and I'm going to put all my energy towards it and I'm going to feel it and I'm going to hurt. But I'm, you know, whether it's you know, talking to people or I, I'm... I'm not just, nothing is going to be mailed in. Everything has to have a purpose. I think that's really, I guess, I don't know, I don't want to get too loose on it, but I think that's really, 
you know, I, I think I, I think it's just purposeful living. It's just I'm not going to just do something because um, I, I don't know how to. I'm trying to give you an example, but I. In other words, I'm trying to start writing again because I think like the writing muscle, just like any muscle, goes when you don't use it. So I keep starting, starting, and I can't kind of get that muscle working again. But I, I know it's going to come if I keep going back to it. So I guess that's maybe in a, in a, uh, something mm-hmm. to connect. I haven't got the right intention yet. When I have it, I'll be able to write. It just hasn't come yet. Did Daniel ever get help for his for his mental health or or, uh, or seek help or want help? I I don't know. I believe he would always want it to be. I, I can't imagine not wanting to be in that brutal fog. I, I I don't know if he sought help outside of whether it was at university or you know locally. Um, when we um, confronted him or intervened, I guess the only time that we really did was after a, a bout of a lot of drinking. And uh, he just said, well, I'm going to stop drinking and I, I can manage this on my own. I can manage. But again, it was just he, he, he was saying the things that he knew we wanted to hear. He, he wasn't. But I also think, I mean, you know, he never sought out help in terms of what we saw. And, the only, and, and as I said, when I sought to get his, our doctor involved, at the point, Daniel was over 18. I couldn't drag him in. So you have to, you have to be in a position to recognize it. Um, and I think some of the new behavioral therapies are actually targeting suicidal thoughts and behaviors and are going to make a difference. But again, you know, we're working with, do you want to go in? No, I don't. I'll deal with this on my own. And so, um, you know, you, you never take no for an answer as a parent because, um, they, what they're saying is I need help. I just don't know where to start because this is just not like whatever's going on here is not what I used to know. And I expect where you, you guys had never really dealt with it, that you didn't know where to get help. No. Besides your family doctor. Absolutely. I, no, I, I mean, I don't even, you know, 2000, 2006 was probably the, 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 the years that things started to change, sort of first year and then on. And slowly he, he was, I mean, it, it was just it's such a contradiction because there were periods of time when he, he, I knew he was genuinely looking forward to the future. I think he was trying to get there. But this darkness that was overtaking him was, um, and he had like, there was zero tools. I mean, I know, I know on his last 24 hours, he reached out to almost every friend that he knew because, you know, we got his phone after. And so I could see the texts. So he was reaching out to people, talking to people, just like in present terms. Nothing, you know, nothing mm-hmm. that would necessarily. But, but you look at even just that alone. What is that saying? Like, here's somebody who's just is just crumbling and is is looking for anything, right? And uh, you know, all all of his friends who we met with after just you know, all felt this you know this guilt. I said you. You you don't know what you don't know, but you know now. So you, you kind of put the pieces together after the fact. Yeah, it, yeah, and that's really all, you know. And I've I've pretty much written or spoken for better part of ten years, but I think the, the reality is we just have to keep having these conversations because it's um, there's always going to be somebody out there that just wants something. That, that's a good segue. Um, <clears throat> what what inspired you to start having? <clears throat> public conversations and become an advocate like what what 
what, at what point did you decide I need to tell my story? I wrote a piece for um, the facts and arguments section of the Globe and Mail in uh, about a month after we lost Daniel. And it was really just that. Uh, what, what inspired that? Well, that was just because I just had that sort of was my healing. Was I just started writing about I, I was afraid I was going to forget what Daniel looked like, walk his voice. I was so afraid of all those things. It's a real thing when you lose somebody that you. So I was I thought I have to catalog. It was like actually like I got this big book and I just started writing what he what he wore, the things he said, his silly comments, walking on an angle, flip flops, all those. He, he was very cool. He had this very cool vibe. <laughs> I don't even know if he knew it, but he, maybe he did. But um, people who are cool usually don't. Uh, know he was just cool. like this cool cat. But um, so I started writing all of that down in this book, and then I started going a little bit deeper and sort of like the things that I wrote a. Uh, Kind of wrote a letter to him, and I could. I was actually angry in this letter. Like, you left us. How did you? Why did you leave us? And I was trying to understand because I, I've never ever since his suicide really had any kind of anger towards him. But in that moment, I recall being allowing that anger to to come out because that's a real feeling, right? And I thought, okay, so it's there. You 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 finally acknowledged it. And then in this piece. I, well, I, again, before it became a piece, I just started writing about him. And then I wrote about him um, because I was thinking about him on this run I did the first week of his death. And it was in that thinking about him, I could sort of think about him in this sort of self-possessed way. And so that's how the piece started. But I also wrote about us traveling back to the cottage that spring after his suicide and sort of doing a smudge ceremony and just actually going back to the sacred now sacred ground, which was harrowing because that's the site of where you lost your child. And so I wanted to write about that. And uh, so the inspiration was trying not to forget all his idiosyncrasies of, of a life of your child. And then trying to also, uh, um, what's the word, I guess, explore, I guess is a good word, but also articulate what that journey was like going to the cottage and opening the door and feeling his, feeling the weight of his screams. I use my hands. Literally, I opened the door and I could feel the the pressure in the cottage. And um, so when that piece got published, I think that we had 24 comments. And this was like, again, 2009. It wasn't so much of the social media or commentary, I don't think even then. And... I guess 22 of the comments were just, that's our story. Thank you for sharing it. You know, you've put words to our loss. Two of them were just like, just sort of, you know, not nice comments. And I thought, well, I guess that is out there too. So just have to leave that. But that inspired me because I realized we weren't alone. So that really probably was the, you know, but I I certainly wasn't in any, um, my mental health had suffered so greatly that I wasn't in any kind of position to be, talking to people or but but writing seemed to be something that I that I could do until my emotional health improved. Hmm. You said it's in Global Mail? Mm-hmm. I can send you the link if you'd like. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I that strikes me as a, a very high profile. Did you did you have a significant profile as a journalist in your career? Um or did you work from the Global Mail? Well no, not Global Mail. I actually worked at C B C as a okay. um, sports journalist. Okay. Um there's this there was a program back in the nineties called the Sports Journal. And they a lot of their stories um, focused on sort of the athlete after their 
they've left the field of their sport. And so I did stories on like Willie O'Ree, the first black athlete to play um, National League hockey, and um, Marlene Stewart Strait, the golfer. So a lot of the pieces I did were not necessarily highly profiled athletes, but they were stories still in the sports realm. And um, that was a great gig. I, I loved it, and I, I got to meet these great people, these athletes. And um, I think um, – so I didn't really have a – I wouldn't say I had a profile. I mean, I, I my, my work was out there, but it wasn't necessarily – again, when I was on the Sports Journal, we didn't have Facebook or Twitter or – maybe we had Facebook. But um, I don't even know back in the 90s if it was there. But certainly I wasn't engaged in any kind of social media um, the first time I got involved with was with Bell Let's Talk, and I was an ambassador one year and did some work for them. So along the way, I've, I've, you know, this grief journey or this journey in advocacy has really just allowed me to meet so many great people and listen to how they've coped and managed. And um, it's just there's just so much uh, so much goodwill out there and, and so much um, support in this advocacy. I mean, that's how I met you was through Twitter and. Mm. You know, as my young daughter says, Mom, you don't meet real friends on Twitter. But I said, yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> you can you meet real people and, you know. Yeah. But um, I, I think it's incredible that that's how we can connect and sort of we've created a movement. And I think we're not like literally not stopping until there's there's zero suicide. You mentioned uh, that in that state uh, a month after your son's death that you weren't uh, you weren't in any place with your mental health to to deal with anybody, but you could write that. What did you do to, to get back to where you needed to be? Uh, counseling. I, um, we, we initially saw a grief counselor and then it ended up just being me. And it it was really just, I think she was, what with the benefit of that was just being able to go to a place and just like, just flat out cry because crying actually makes you feel better. But then get kind of a tool for the next couple of weeks to manage the day to day. But then, uh, then that was a year, and sort of I sort of had sort of fi- finished that. I still we we tried um, group counseling, which was horrific because you're in a room with eight other families who have lost by all manner, um, all tragic. It is a lot of pain in that room, so I realized that's not a healthy place. So we we actually the um, uh, distress centers of Toronto have has this f- fabulous program for survivors, and you basically are paired up with a survivor and who's sort of like down the road on their journey and a counselor and you sit with them for eight or ten weeks and they give you literally they help you function they like they give you sort of tools to function over holidays over birthdays over um you know how people respond to you because that's another thing that's a whole other thing but so for me it was sort of being able to speak it out to somebody who could could kind of advise me sort of and then i went to cognitive behavioral therapy so that was sort of that helped me for a period of time, and that's sort of where I role played and I talked to Daniel in the sessions. Very, very difficult. I found it super painful, but it helped because because the pain's there, and if you can find a vessel or some way to sort of get it out slowly, it doesn't stay there. So I think that was, um, and you know, now like I'll I'll see, um, you know, I, I have aging parents, and I need I need tools again because be, because of our experience I figure I you know each loss becomes um you you handle it in different ways and I I, because I lost our our, we lost our son I I don't necessarily have the the strategies or the coping mechanisms to manage aging parents so now I'm sort of 
reaching out with a, a meeting with a counselor just to sort of talk it through and you know where you have to back off because you've got to protect yourself in some ways so um uh, to me when you when you're not when you don't think you're you're capable of managing the situation then i, I it's like i personally ask for help you know I'll, i i don't necessarily get there right away but i i started thinking about it for a while no i i need help i need to get some uh, some advice on this and 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 then you know for me the writing helps um and and my outlet is physical activity so that's sort of that's that's probably the number two thing it's just pushing my body to silly things and uh just being like minded you know my tribe and um it it feels uh you talk about intention feel like there's 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 it's purposeful i'm i'm physically but i'm also helping this the, my my head heal hmm. um you talked about how how writing helps you wrote this piece for the gold mail a very um and in a very short order after after Daniel's death, did you continue to write in other mediums and in in other ways um, after yeah. that? Um, so I continued to write in my own book. I just started. I just kept writing about Daniel, so compiling his story. And um, what led me to write my book was I went to see a psychiatrist in Toronto, um, Dr. Roger McIntyre, and he, uh, through an, another friend, actually said, I, "I'll give you an hour of my time." So I went to him. I had all my questions. There were a few about Daniel I wanted to sort of understand um, as best I could in, in hindsight. So he answered those questions and then gave me this wealth of information of where I should start to go for the research on suicidal behavior. And that is really what propelled me to write my book because I it was just so much information. And how did, I knew the value of writing a story, but that was packed with information about this one experience because it wasn't sort of how to survive a suicide it was how to not get there how how, how to intervene way before that um so so i think through the through that so that was a three-year process of writing the book the book came out i in the meantime i um did an excerpt with the national post took a, took an excerpt of the book and, and um so it's all online now there's like there's a lot of the pieces i've, I've written for HuffPost a lot a lot of different uh, blog posts on on youth, um, on our, our, our lack of suicide prevention um, initiatives in this country. <clears throat> so I've and I've I guess I've written for um, Mood Magazine. Um, there's a list on my website. I just can't remember all of them at this time. But I've done a tremendous amount of writing for for different outlets. Just um, and actually recently um, um, this blog uh, called Live Feisty. They're basically Iron Women, and they've got this new podcast, and so they took my story. Um, it's a letter to myself, basically on understanding suicide and um, sort of living beyond it. And they posted it on their, their site, too. So I'm kind of, um, at 10 years, I'll con- I'm, I, I think there's so much more information I can continue to share through our story. Um, but I'm also um, sort of moving in the direction of what are the new treatments out there? And, and and you know, there's just so much out there that I kind of wanted to... So it's kind of like going back to the to the drawing board and sort of reading again, looking at the new research and, and how can I disseminate that so that I can maybe offer that in a post or, you know, in, in some form to, to give some information. So, Can you tell us more about your book? Uh, so I published it in 2014. Um, 
I was very fortunate that the uh, the agent in in Toronto had a similar experience, and so he was very open to helping me publish it. Um, and it's basically on Amazon now, which I guess everything is on Amazon. But it's <laughs> it really tells the story of a family who lived this really ordinary kind of existence, but were just really sort of knotted together for so many years. And um, I think what it serves to do is to um, sort of thread show Daniel's sort of trajectory from a young boy to a teenager to a young um, entrepreneur and then off to university and sort of along the way, what were sort of those threads that were sort of breaking apart throughout his life that um, at any point we could have probably intervened and at least, you know, we'll never know if we had an opportunity. But um, it's really just a family story and I thought by making it more accessible as a memoir – people could get into it and just um, absorb it as a story as opposed to clinical information. The very end of the book um, actually ends with the Pearl Jam's Black. Um, I, I quote a few of the words from the song. Um, and then there's two chapters basically on grief work and on, um, I, I call it post-mortem, and it really goes into detail on all of the the, the symptoms that were, were were completely missed as for what they were. Um so, um, and that's 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 a lot of research, and that's sort of cited papers and things like that that I've actually included in the in the book. Is there a certain demographic that you hope reads it? Like, is it geared towards parents, or is it geared towards just family members, anybody in general? Judging from who has bought it, really anybody that wants to have a, a, a personal sort of a wants to follow me on this personal journey, uh, because because there are many many moments of light in it, but it. I think a person that wants to understand what mental illness from inside looks like, truthfully, and 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 I I I think if you read it, then you understand that there were many points where we could have intervened, and I don't shy away from using the word denial or because we we were clearly, and so I, I it's very um, from the reviews that it's gotten. Um, from people that are in the world of mental illness or mental health, I should say, and also in the uh, book world, um, it's sort of accessible uh, read based on a very inaccessible subject. Did you discover through the writing process that there were signs that you missed? And like, was that kind of your part yeah, of the absolutely. grieving that you kind of uh, it was a bit of a self discovery? Absolutely, yeah, okay. yeah. And the title is a letter to Daniel. The, no, the, the one of the chapters is a letter okay. to Daniel. Uh, the book is Give Sorrow Words. Okay. And uh, so what led to the, the TED Talk? I actually got an email from the, TED, the TEDx Youth in Toronto. And in 2013, they were setting up their roster of uh, speakers. And they invited me. And I thought, well, that's kind of a... So then they sent me some links of the TEDx Talk. And basically, you stand there for a better part of 18 minutes. And you don't have any notes. And you have visuals behind you. Um, and... You talk. You just go go for it. And I, I thought I don't know if I can do that. Like I just don't. I mean, I know I know the story. I just don't know if I can do that in front of a group of young people and keep it together. But there was such a. It, it was just so. Anyway, got it together. It took me months. You know, got got it sort of polished. Um, sat there just before I was being called in my to one of my daughters. I said, I just don't know if I can do this. Um, because that day they had all manner of different, they had like a, a, a juggling act, they had 
um, Virtue and Moyer as the speakers. They had just a variety of different speakers. And I was like the third last. And they had this big visual uh, of Daniel on the screen behind me. And um, the first thing I said is he was really good. Lo- like he was a really good looking young guy and <laughs> in the room. This girl goes, he sure is. Like, and it just was like, that was just like, okay, thank you. I, just, I feel like I can do yeah. this now. Nice. And, and then I just went for it. So it was, um, you know, it was just one of those, uh, it was just, it was so, uh, um, what I, what I gave out, I got back, you know, hundredfold. It was just, the, the, the kids were just uh, phenomenal. Yeah, you would never know watching it that you were going through this leading up to it because it, it just seemed so natural. And uh, I, I don't know, it seemed like you'd done it a hundred times before. <laughs> Thank you. you know, well, I, I had rehearsed it in the basement a lot <laughs> with my daughter. And it, it's kind of funny, because the, you know, the funny little side story is my, my um, daughter Emily is um, – uh, figure skating aficionado, and she knows virtual and more. They're every step, they're every move, every everything. So when they heard, you know, she goes, "I said I'd like you to come with me." And by the way, they're going to be there. So they, her and her friend, um, were like, like becoming unglued, waiting for them to enter the building. <laughs> and so they would take pictures sitting in their chairs, and then I said, "Just, just relax. Like it's you know, it's going to be good." By the end of the day, we had selfies with them, and they were like, "It was just so that was all great." But I turned around once I started, and I, I made a, I made some kind of comment that I hadn't rehearsed. She's like, "Where did that come from? We rehearsed it this way. Like, where did you where did you start?" So, so now when I speak, that's kind of my little. Even if she's not present, I'll 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 do something that's off the cuff. Just it's my icebreaker that gets me going. Like, it starts me off, and uh, kind of that she's with me. But um, you know, I, I think it's who you're speaking with. If you feel like you're you're impacting them in some way or they're you're resonating you're getting feedback you can you can just be yourself and you can just be as honest as as it's as possible and i i mean the only things i've ever really shied away from because and i i really fight with the media about this is is the way um people who have experienced the suicide are so traumatized after for years and so when we hear things or hear how people actually the manner in which people have died. It is it, it it'll take us right back to that day, even ten years, twenty years later. So I, those are the kinds of things I don't talk about. I there's no value in me sharing that, and so um, like the specifics, specifics of how, because it, right. it, the the means by which somebody ends their life is so minuscule in the in the fact that everything that led up to that moment. Then that's the things we need to focus on because when we focus on the means then to me then we are getting into contagion because then you're you're just you're 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 you're, you're speaking things that i don't think necessarily are of value or are helping anybody especially someone mm-hmm. that's not not doing well i'm a little curious about that from from because you were a journalist for for so long and i am not nearly the journalistic level that you reached but when i was in school we had um, a class where we talked about this sort of thing, the ethics of mm-hmm. of what you can and cannot print, and and this, to be honest, this was not something that came up. It, this no, was not, not like education either. This was not a thing. Like when when we talked about ethics, it was can can you play a video where someone dies in the video? Uh, like can right. you play that? And that from an ethical point was what we were talking about. But so you're saying that uh, you believe that when it comes to reporting on. Uh, on death by suicide that we shouldn't be talking about the about how it 
specifically how it happened. Yeah, for example, there was a there was a, uh, a well-known comedian died the other day, Brody Stevens. Yes. And uh, it said in the article that he died by hanging. Mm. And is that necessary? No. That's what I mean. Like, uh, that's the yeah. first thing I thought. I was like, does it oh. matter? Does it matter? <sighs> yeah, I mean, it, because to someone that has experienced that, the visual reminders of that, it, it takes so many years to let the charge of how your family member or loved one died. Like physically, you, you recount how they died in sleep for years. It takes so much work to move that out of that sort of consciousness that when someone uh, talks of it or it happens in that you're sort of part of that, you, you, you're stuck. Like you're, you're literally stuck again and that whole charge has you again. And it just takes you down another path. And it's, I'm not saying you're not, you, you're always going to have sadness. That's not what I'm, but when you, when you remark about how someone took their life, you, you are actually offering up ways and means of how to end your life. I, I, I think it sensationalizes the mental illness. I think it sensationalizes the act. And we should be so much more focused on what, what led up to that moment. Because that's how we're going to make change, not by saying how, you know, this person shot themselves or this person, um, you know, ran in front of a train. But I think even the words simple as commit suicide are gone. Like we we say and I I will stop somebody and say, can we just say died by suicide or lost through suicide? Take commit is a uh, is denoting crime because suicide was a crime in the 50s. It was a crime to take your life. So we, we. is it not hard enough that we've lost somebody to continually um, sort of re-traumatize survivors? Is um, you know that's something that I, I just I I remember writing to the head of CBC um, Radio Canada in Montreal. I was just beyond upset, and I, I they did actually respond to me, and in time actually had me on Metro Morning. Like I like how can you allow this language? And it wasn't them; it was one of their guests. The things that that guest said, and I it was really in the context of. Um, giving kids a credit card at school is akin to giving them rope to hang themselves. I'll remember to this day. This yeah, like, that's, that's a nice parallel. That's eight years ago. And I, 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 st- I was in the car with my husband and I said, I have to write this down. I've got, and I, I, I could not believe that, you know, <laughs> I mean, the, the media outlet that I actually worked with allowed that. And I said, it's not like, the host should have been able to cut, shut, shut that down or yeah. it, like it was a live piece. But I said like that should have been sh- – even the fact that this, those guests said it, the host should have had sort of something to, to you know, sort of to match up to that because I, I just, you know, uh, I mean, I, you know, if I willingly go to a movie, this is an example, we went to the Star is Born, I had no idea that that's how the, you know, that there was going to be a certain ending and I won't spoil it, but what we all know now, it doesn't end well and I we were sitting in the theater and it was such a great movie and then we recognized something was going to change and we literally just we looked at each other got up and left but we we took oh, ourselves I thought of that when I was watching it because I actually hated the movie yeah. I, I couldn't um, I, I again I, I it's just I guess you know it's as simple as it's too close to home but I, yeah. it's I'll never know how that movie ended although I know that it doesn't end the way we could we could absorb it. And so. it was uh it's fairly graphic. Yeah. yeah. So I mean I'm not as bad yeah. as it could have been. I, I will say that. Not to like Fair sit enough. there and defend yeah. the movie, but um 
Yeah, it was it, – they definitely weren't – it was – they didn't sugarcoat it. You know, and I, I almost – like I get – I get – it, because I look at the person like Lady Gaga, who's so outspoken about mm-hmm. mental illness in this music community. A little surprising that she, was, she would be down with that. Well, yeah. but I almost, I guess if we look at it as a statement that, like, that we're not going to sugarcoat it. We're going to show you the realities of what will happen. And uh, and because she has spoken so adamantly about supporting the community, um because I, I don't think – I mean, she would have had to be – I mean, just because she's such an outspoken advocate and she's dealt with depression herself, I'm thinking that she had to be on board with the way the whole sort of movie unfolded. Mm-hmm. But I, just as a survivor of suicide loss, I couldn't be on board with it because I, I just sure. – I we've been there. And um, I think it's also it, – because – because you're see, you're sitting in a movie theater, you're sitting in your car, things can change so quickly and you, you're not even – like you don't have time to prepare – you're like, oh my god! It's, it's it's just such a, you know, it's such a bizarre place to be uh, as a survivor. But to when you relive those moments, which you think you've sort of worked through, you realize that you haven't. You realize it's always, you're always the charge will always be there. And yeah, I, uh, as you're saying this, I was wondering, um, for you, and going back to the movie example, is there a way at all? That, that that an ending like that could be tastefully done or is it always going to be an issue? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I you know, I'd say I, I think there could be where, where we could we could actually consume it, we being survivors or people that are uh, but I, I you know, I think I have to do some thinking on that. I, I think that there, there 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 there's things that I've watched, let's put it this way, that I I recognize that that was the ending. I saw the ending. It, I, you, you, you sort of, you have a sense that someone has taken their life. It's just, it's not sort of out there in your face. It's referenced maybe in sort of dialogue that's maybe coded almost, like there's that kind of thing. I could have probably handled that, but I think because I didn't, we don't, as we don't know what we're going to see. And I've got to think, even for somebody who is a survivor, that's got to be jarring. I just. Um, I don't know. I, I still go back to the idea of, of contagion. I think, um, you know, with access to whether it be all kinds of things, but guns, you know, specifically in the, in the U.S., I'd say, showing um, someone being, you know, shooting themselves or, and these things have been online with YouTube. I think it was a couple of years ago, they had this guy who who used to be this, He I can't remember his name, so I, I shouldn't probably mention it, but it, he... He was kind of like this guy that would do these like really way out things, and he actually Is it the, the Logan Paul suicide forest. Yes, yeah, and and actually sh- videoed uh, a young guy taking his life, and I I thought like yeah the the body the body in the forest. In um, what world are we supposed to look at that? Like uh, so yeah, the that, idea that anybody thought that was okay. I don't care yeah. how oblivious you are to that's not okay to that. That's n- not on any planet. Is no. that okay? No, and that's yeah. not okay. For, that's, so, I think there has to be sort of a, an understanding of, of how far how far do we go. I I choose to in my book not provide details because again, it, it, that sort of has become um, just so not part of Daniel's life. That, that his legacy was not that last day. He left us a note, and that note contained exactly how he felt. And so we know that he was really unwell. 
and he spoke to his sadness. He spoke to feeling guilty for not being able to um, manage what was going on in his life. Um, and he said sorry, and we were never sure, and I'll never know. I, th- I think he said sorry for what was going to happen. But the actual act was never part of, you know, and I even in the book referenced a few words, for, a few lines from his note. Um, and I debated that for a long time because I thought, is that is that crossing a line? But I, I did it in a way, again, just to help someone understand, help a reader understand what Daniel would have been thinking in that moment. Um, but I, I just, I think in this day and age, we're so much more enlightened. Let's look at other ways to, we know things happen, but can can we look at other ways to, um, to examine suicide? I, I want to just circle back to something uh, from a few minutes ago when we were talking about the how the media talks about suicide. Um, Justin brought up Brody, I'm sorry, the, Stevens. the Brody Stevens, thank you. Brody Stevens and how it was just a right in the article. It was right there how how it happened. You can't miss it. It's like the first line. I was like, "Oh, it's not like why?" But you also you just offhandedly talked about, you know, you you said the phrase uh, jumped in front of a train. And that that made me think about the way that we at least at the radio station that I work at talk about incidents such as that. We don't say anything. We say the train is late. Right. The highway is closed. When it comes to, uh, for lack of a better word, regular people. But when it comes to celebrities, we're so everybody, you know, you got to know exactly how it is. Do you think that there's a bit of a double standard well, there? You just called me out on something, and I thank you for that because I actually said a phrase that I would not normally say. Okay. Um, so I want to apologize because I wouldn't normally say those words. Um, I was, I think I was just trying to articulate something, but, um, I think now we, I think your question was, should we say the train is being held? Well, it's more like we, we already have this language, at least for, for, for the station I work at, like we have this language when it comes to, it's softened when it's a regular person, but it's not when it's a celebrity. we, We don't generally, we don't report period on, on any deaths by suicide that are like, that happen in the home or, or something like that, because that's that's not news and that's not something people need to know. But it's, when it in some way it becomes newsworthy, we still don't report on it. We you know we tell people the highway is closed. Right. We don't say why the highway is closed. We know because the the police tell us, but we don't right. tell we don't tell people that. And right. so we have these in place already. Why is it then when it comes to people who are not even just celebrities, but just known in any way that right. we we need to tell them. We need to tell people exactly how it happened. I think it's just salacious. It's just it's mm. just feeding that machine, feeding that need to to we're, we're a, you know I guess celebrity driven world for so many ways, and I think it just feeds that narrative too that you know they took their life because they couldn't cope, or they again don't not not understanding what went before that. You know mm. that's I, I mean. Yeah, the method's really not the story. No, the method, exactly. Mm-hmm. The method, um, when I was doing the talk, one of the reasons that they wanted a parent there or somebody who would experience suicide loss was because of the um, suicides um, on the bridge. And there were many in a, in a short amount of time, or there were several. And the, the, basically there was this social media frenzy of either talking about it or saying the wrong things. And so the p- people were like angry in the community about the way it's being reported. 
Um, and I, I said flat out, like, I'm not going to talk to your community's experience because I don't know what it's like. But it's, I was reading a lot about it. And it really, it's because of they, they, they put up barriers, they, they're doing everything they can. So I said, those are the kinds of things you should be talking about. We have this new, whatever, state of the art bridge, you should be putting up barriers, you should be doing these things. Um, education, mental health first aid, these are the kinds of things around the fact that these people have died by suicide. That's your conversation, not how they died. And I mean, I was, I was in the room and the very last person that came up to me that night and talked to me just looked at me and said, really, you know, glad you came. Um, and then she started telling me about her suicide attempts going to jump and I'm like I I I knew I it, it was a long night as it was like it was like it was a great night but it was like I couldn't I couldn't take any more of that and I just said like I, I said I, I'm really glad because she's now a she's an advocate and for mental mental health first aid um person and I said I'm so happy what you're doing like from your experience but I had to shut her off because I could not have her recount and I know she needed to tell me but I couldn't take it and so you have to have self-care. You have, whatever it mm-hmm. is, whoever you are, practice self-care because sometimes you don't – you shouldn't be forced to hear things that you don't necessarily um, – and, and really, how could I respond to it? I mean, it's just um, – I – it's just uh, – I don't – and I also don't feel equipped, you know, I just uh, from a professional standpoint. I am a mom. I'm not – Yeah, you're speaking from your personal experience. Yeah, I – yeah, I don't even know how to re- respond to, to – uh, Plus, I, I just didn't have the heart to go there. But um, so I, I, you know, I think we, I think there has to be an acknowledgement because because we are talking about it now. But I think it's we really have to continue to to build in more things. And I'm not saying make it um, PC or anything like that. But with the sensitivity to to the people that are are dealing with mental health issues to the survivors and their caregivers, I think we just have to all think about all the other people that it's Im- impacting. It's interesting, actually, that the, the friend of Justin and I, uh, I was having a conversation with him about, I believe, the exact same situation you were talking about uh, and how to talk about the the talk about what was happening in in his community and, and how everybody at the station that he worked at wanted to, you know, talk about just how it kept happening on this yeah. on this bridge and where he was more interested in the root causes of why this was happening, like why, why was there suddenly this rash all over, over a year or however long it was, why was this happening and, and, and what were the causes of it? But it seemed like everybody else that he worked with was just more interested in the. And that sounds like what you're speaking to in regards to contagion. Yes. That the more you talk about it, the more people are going to want to. Well, again, more the means. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, one of the reasons why, say, go doesn't, you know, if you're on a train and you, you get held up, you have a pretty good idea. Sure. I mean, unless, unless it's Especially weather. Especially if you ride the train yeah. all the time, you know. You and know exactly what's happening. So I don't think you have to spell it out because I don't think it's – I mean, I know our daughter Emily rides the train every day and she's been stopped on occasion. And, and I, I, I know her heart sinks when that happens because um, – but I, I don't think – we need to. I just don't think anything is benef- anything is gained from us talking about means. I, mm-hmm. I think it's just another. You, 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 I don't. You're just you're just offering something out there publicly that doesn't doesn't need to be out there. 
people will find their ways. But I'm just why do we why do we encourage sure. that? Why yeah. are we encouraging that? That's um, I, I want to bring the conversation back to uh, to your advocacy work. Um, you had your TED talk, and had, was that your first uh, your first kind of public speaking engagement? Um, no, no, actually, I don't know why I had gap there. I uh, probably in t- I think in 2011, I, I started. Um, um, York University had me there on their international. Um, International Women's Day. I spoke, um, and I, I spoke at Laurier. I, I, I sort of started speaking at universities, um, and that was kind of a, I really enjoyed that because I like being with being was with that people. based on Daniel's experience, like that you chose to do it that way. I think so. I wanted well, I, exactly. I wanted to give my send our message, which was Daniel's and my message to young people. I really that's what I thought I wanted to start. And also, I find people um, in that age range are really like they're learning so much, and they, they they want to learn more. Like they're open to, you know, and they're and they want to ask questions. And so I I went to um, a few different things like that, and then um, then I started working with the National Speakers Bureau, and from there I've done just a variety of different things. Um, I've talked to the distress centers, so in a way of kind of giving back, I was able to go back and speak to the distress centers. Their annual event and just speak to what it did for us as survivors and uh, Canadian Mental Health Association I've spoken for them I've raised money for them so it's it's just like you know little small steps along the way just um, the, yeah I mean there, there, there's a small reward I get when I feel like something has resonated with someone so there is a reward effect I think um, and I think it's just as I said when I, I get a sign, then I, then I know I've said everything I can say. The TED Talk was a little over four years ago? Yeah, so yeah, 2014. Um, and that that one stands out just because of the platform that it is, and there's a certain profile that comes with, with the TED platform. Um, what what other sort of high-profile things? I know you have, you have some details here on, on a recent one you did with CMHA Niagara. Have you done other things like that? Yeah, so I, um, I, I was actually asked... Um, uh, to sit on a, uh, basically it was a um, <sighs> kind of this meet group meeting, but it was um, it was uh, was broadcast and it was um, the White House initiative on um, excellence in education in the African community uh, when Barack Obama was in, in uh, the president. So I actually got to sit in on that call and um, wow. just, you know give my my sort of journey and also talk about um, I'm biracial. And so um, I sort of speak from the point of view of somebody who is of mixed heritage, I guess. I'm not living in Chicago. I'm not living, I'm not, I'm not an African-American living in the U.S., but um, I, I think because of our experience, the fact that I'm biracial is almost secondary to it. It was just more, um, and that, that was quite high profile. So that was the White House Initiative on um, Mental Illness in the African-American Community, which is very different and very interesting because there's this sort of, thought that um, typically African-Americans won't reach out for help, particularly men. But there's, it's just, it's one of those things that that they're trying to break through with young people in, in the U.S., just another barrier. So, um, you know, we talked about that. And um, I actually was invited, probably um, something I would have never thought of in my wildest dreams, but the 
every two years, suicideologists from around the world convene in a location. And they invited me to speak to this group of suicidologists and others in New York in 2015. And that was incredible because that was, that was also an, uh, a moment for me that that the researchers are actually wanting to understand it from the suicide survivor's point of view and attempt survivors. I think that, to me, that was huge, is that they're, they're sort of walking away from the books and actually wanting to go into lived experience. So I, I spoke there. Um, this, um, you know, I, this Project Zero is something that I, I'm sort of uh, part of, and uh, Dr. Ian Daw, who's, you've probably seen him on uh, social media, so he's part of, of bringing this, Project Zero to us in Ontario. And really um, what what excites me about it is part of the premise is they want to use um, children and um, survivors of suicide loss. So they want to have discussions with family members to see how that they can create these programs and actually use their education and knowledge from their experience to create this Project Zero. Um, that's just one one part of it. But you know, they have a manifesto of like hope, healing, um, and help, basically, I think is the, their manifesto. And they, they really want to create a national suicide prevention strategy, but take away all the layers of bureaucracy and actually create a center for excellence in Mississauga that becomes this satellite that you can use in every province. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's got educators, it's creating mental health champions who have language and vocabulary and helping the media to understand really how they should, we should be reporting on things or how they should be reporting. Um, we talked earlier about coping, coping mechanisms and resiliency, all those things they want to create this hub um, and also outreach for youth and children. So I'm very excited about it because they, they want in the year 2020, 2027 to have zero suicides in the city of Mississauga. So that is their goal. And, you know, if you look back to cancer can be beaten, you know, that was just a phrase and now it's real. So I, I, I'm wholeheartedly, whatever they want me to do I, to help them or support them, I'll be there. Fantastic. Um, is there anything else to you have on the go, uh, anything uh, upcoming? Um, obviously, your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? That's this true. podcast. That is upcoming. <laughs> this is, um, let's see. I'm I'm sort of mulling around an idea for um, to do an event that, uh, like a physical event that um, raises money. I've never really been. I, I raised money for CMHA Oakville. It was through my swim club. It was a great, fun initiative and everything. But I've never really sort of taken that on my back and sort of run with it alone. And I, I'm sort of mulling around an idea possibly for 2020. Hmm. So that's, um, um, I'll let you know if that, that comes to fruition. Hmm. And it's uh, it just it kind of, I look at all the people and all the contacts and all that goodwill. And I'm thinking, how do I pull this together to raise funds for youth mental health administrators that are in our communities? Then that would kind of be like, then I think you've done everything you can. <laughs> so... Hopefully, you know, we'll, uh, I'll let you know how that goes. Well, yeah, you, you, you said mulling over. And if there's one piece that I can take from everything you've told us in the past hour and a bit, um, it's that it sounds like whatever you set your mind to, you achieve and, and you do it well. So I, I have no, there's no question in my mind that whatever you do will be a success. Um, and I'll add, I mentioned it earlier, but... Um, I do go through waves of I don't know if I should do the podcast. Does, does it matter? Does anybody listen? Does it make a difference? Mm. And um, 
I, I still don't know if it makes a difference, but I, I do know that just by putting this out there and specifically putting your story and what you've said in this podcast out there to the world, mm-hmm. and hopefully it clings to somebody and makes a difference. And um, I am just overwhelmingly honored to have been a part of, of sharing your story today. So thank you for oh, my taking pleasure. the time. My pleasure. Uh, Luke, do you have anything else? No, no. It was uh, it was great. Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, thank um, you guys. Have been great. So it's and, easy and to talk. Sharing <laughs> everything and 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 answering our questions. It was wonderful. Do we miss yeah. anything? <sighs> I'm trying to think if there's something that um, it's coming up. Um, I'm part of. I'm doing this thing with uh, Silicon Lawman, that Unsinkable oh, Initiative. Wow. But I don't know if that's really important. Really, with regard to this. Okay. Uh, oh, no, everything's important. We let people promote whatever they want. <laughs> uh, one thing I, I will point to is that uh, you ha- you have a website, and what, what yeah. can people find at linkeen.ca? Yeah, so yeah, linkeen.ca, all my links are up there. Um, and, you know, any new initiatives will be posted there sort of as, as things become sort of real. And, <laughs> and you can get the book everywhere. And you, and you can get the book on Amazon. The link to the book is on um, on my website. Also, the some commentary. Um, actually, Michael Landsberg wrote the uh, first piece. Um, I guess for not forward, but wrote um, a comment on the book. And I I did reach out to him because years ago, when I was in the sports world, um, I used to do Fighting Fridays with him. And one of the few women that actually went on and talked sports. This again back in the day. This was like. Uh, like on off the record? Yeah, I was, oh, I, was, nice. I was on. I love that show because it was just, you didn't know it was, where it was coming from. <laughs> I always loved it too. Yeah, it was just yeah. a great, so Fridays he'd, he'd have these like really combative shows. So um, when I, I we lost Daniel over the years, I, I reached out to him and, and uh, I told him I'd written a book. So he, he read it and um, he wrote just a very, um, just a really nice, from his perspective and his experience um, comment on it. So awesome. anyway, you can find that on my on the website. Nice. Uh, did you want to easily just say, uh, do you want to pitch your social media accounts? Uh, where can they find you on Twitter? Anywhere else? What are my names? <laughs> what are my names? I know. Let me check. Uh, <laughs> let's find it. <laughs> yeah. uh, Keen, K-E-A-N-E underscore L-Y-N-N on Twitter. Lynn Keen underscore seven on Instagram as well. Which is a platform that I'm not on. Are you on Instagram? I was, but I deleted it. There you go. You? We're, we're yeah. both not cool enough to be on Instagram. Yeah. Well, I don't know that I'm cool. I just, <laughs> I, you know what? It was an antidote for for Twitter because mm. there was a point where I thought I literally have said everything I can say and I don't like the arguing and I don't like the, there was a point with, the, I, I, I actually, I did the mental health walk. I was then when they did the, the launch of the walk, I did, I spoke and that was great. And I'm on their board. I'm I'm sort of an advisor on the board, and I, I I'm so into grassroots mom- movements. I think that we we can't lose sight, no matter what we do, whoever we are in this world is uh, with this subject. Is what is the end goal? Like, what is it we want to achieve? Do we want to heighten our profile, or do we want to make it like what can we actually do? So that's that's when I kind of got off Twitter for a while because I just thought, oh my god. Like, my retweet means nothing. So, <laughs> so, but it is health. Like it's, it's great for when you do things like this. I think it's great for putting out links, for sharing that it's going to come up and, and things like that. But that's why I'm on Instagram. <laughs> nice. All right. Yeah, Instagram's um, not really an audio medium. So yeah. no, it doesn't, exactly. doesn't really work for audio. That's what I we'll am. say. <laughs> it's a conversation for another day, but to this day I have no idea why Instagram is so popular. 
I, I li- listen. My wife is only on Instagram. She's not on Twitter at all. It's uh, a visual. It's like I think it, you know, puppies and stuff. I guess <laughs> no, but I think that you can you can post things that are personal, but that are like pictorial. So yeah. I think that's yeah. Speaking anyway. of pictorial, can we get a picture? Yeah, of course. Uh, well, yeah. Let's just wrap this yeah. up. Uh, get me on uh, Twitter at J-D-I-C-K-I-E on Facebook. Send me a message on Facebook Messenger. I'm not on Facebook anymore, but you can get me but on But not Messenger. on Instagram. Don't not, try to contact, don't try to contact me on Instagram. <laughs> it's, it'll be fruitless. Uh, uh, at the Elvermere, T-H-E-L-V-E-R-M-E-E-R on Twitter. Uh, like, subscribe, rate, review, share this podcast, get it wherever you get your podcasts. Lynn, thank you so much again for coming in. This is really great. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, thank you everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you soon.